So blessed to have the children lead us and be part of the worship service just now. I remember when I, I received Christ when I was in secondary one, so 12 going on 13. And, and uh, looking at them now, their souls are so much better than mine was at that time. Much fewer things to overcome being raised in godly families and so blessed to see that happening in our church. As I mentioned, um, when I received Christ in secondary one, I got involved with the Christian fellowship and I made some of my best school friends there. After all levels, I went to study in England and on one of my return trips during the holidays, I was quite dismayed to learn that among some of my good CF friends, two of them were no longer walking with Christ and a third one was a professed homosexual. In fact, one of the first questions when I came back to that group, those who were still there asked me, are you still a Christian? And it was quite sad. It was troubling for me that these friends who were among the leaders of the Christian fellowship, we led worship together, we planned outreach together, we did Bible study and follow up with younger believers together. What happened? Was such a thing possible? You know, those questions about can someone lose their salvation became a real troubling issue for me. So I began to ask and read and study on that topic for about the next five years, trying to come to some resolution. I never really did. Every answer didn't seem very satisfactory. Even eventually, I did come to some resolution and I was okay with that for some time. And that stayed with me for about 20 years. In the last 10 years or so, I started to revisit that for various reasons. Our text today in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 17, brought back many of those memories and reflections for me. I want to say that it's not possible to conclude anything today. This debate has been around ever since Paul wrote these epistles. And whatever I say today will likely create many more questions for you that have even more difficult answers. All I hope to do is simply and humbly share my current reflections and tentative musings. And I invite you to think along with me. So we'll read the text, five verses, pray and dive in. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 17. I'm reading from the NESB. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. So Father, Lord, Bless us in our study of your word, that we may in turn bless you by receiving it with joy and applying it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Maybe a quick word on interpreting epistles or the letters in the New Testament. It's what's called situational theology. Epistles are the apostles writing in response to a very particular situation in that church. Therefore, it's not meant to be a complete treatment of any particular topic, but speaking to that specific context. Situational theology, therefore, is theology applied to a specific situation as compared to systematic theology, which can be understood as what does the whole Bible say on a particular topic. You study the whole Bible and you systematize it according to the topics and give a complete response. So for that reason, it is important to understand what was the situation into which Paul was writing. And that safeguards us from trying to apply the lessons or the answers to a wrong context. And that's often been a source of confusion and misunderstanding. So attempting to use answers here to answer other questions which Paul was never attempting to address. And so what was the Thessalonians' situation? Well, I'm indebted to Pastor John two weeks ago who preached on 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, setting up the context and understanding for these last five verses of chapter 2. In summary, Pastor John said the Thessalonians were worried that they were left behind because there were rumors going around that Jesus had returned and somehow they missed it. So Paul writes in assurance, well, the Christ has not yet come because there would be several events, clear events preceding his return, and that when he does come, it would be very obvious. In short, these were a people shaken in their faith, worried about their eternal destiny, and that's the way we need to understand Paul's writings in this chapter. You know, my favorite two-by-two grid, I'm going to draw another one. This time of salvation against assurance. You can have people who have no, not no salvation and logically no assurance of salvation. You can have people who are saved and are feeling assured about their salvation. Those are the two very straightforward categories. But there are two further troubling categories where a person might not be saved, but somehow feel or believe that they are, or we could have those that truly are, but somehow are shaken in their belief. So you may have heard some sayings, so preachers are to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that's kind of what that's, that means. Uh, if, if you are saved, and you don't feel like it, then receive the comfort of the Lord. But if somehow you think you are saved, but in truth are not, and almost comfortable in complacency, that's where it is the preacher's job to stir and challenge and cause to question. So in these verses, Paul addresses quadrant four with a minor reference to quadrant two. Systematic theology tells us that 
the believer's experience of salvation goes through 10 things. Earlier, I loved that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Jesus did everything on the cross. That's Christ's work. That's Christ's experience. But what is the believer's handshake? What is the believer's experience of what Christ has done? And this is standard systematic theology you will find in any book on systematic theology. Ten things that a believer experiences and goes through. Election. This happens before we even know Jesus. That is his sovereign choice of us to believe. The gospel call is when in response to a gospel presentation, we respond. We repent. In that moment, we are justified made right in our standing before God, regenerated, made alive in our spirits, adopted into his family. Two to six happens instantaneously at the point of conversion. Sanctification is that ongoing throughout life, be holy for I am holy, increasingly growing in our holiness and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, those kinds of verses and exhortations. Perseverance is hanging on to the end, going through whatever life may throw at you, a faith that lasts. Seven and eight happens throughout our life. Death is the doorway into glory. And that happens, well, naturally at the death of our physical body. And glory, glorification, when we're finally made perfect, as we were meant to be, and 9 and 10 occurs at that point of transition. Each one of these 10 things can be a whole message in itself. I just want to say that in, this, in three short verses, Paul touches on five of these things. Verse 13, election, chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Gospel call, verse 14, he called you through our gospel. Sanctification, verse 13, salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Perseverance, verse 15, stand firm, hold to the traditions which you were taught. Glorification, verse 14, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says the whole thing again in prayer form in verses 16 and 17. So our first point, chosen for glory. Election is the word that is used to describe God's choosing of you from before the world began. And that completely eliminates any kind of pride or works, meritocracy, or good thing you might have done to earn salvation. Because Christ chose you before you were even around, how could we have done anything to earn or deserve that? But election has troubled theologians, believers, non-believers, because the next question is often asked, well, what about free will? <laughs> if God chooses, then do I have a choice in this or not? And if God is ultimately sovereign and he made the choice to choose some, does he choose others to be condemned? Well, it seems rather unfair to punish those whom he didn't choose and therefore couldn't be saved. Well, you've got to remember <laughs> that Paul was writing the Thessalonians to those who were truly saved, but not feeling assured, shaken in their faith. So election is always 
intimate. It is always loving language. It is literally the words of deep love. A bridegroom says to a bride, and the bride responds to the bridegroom, forsaking all others, I thee wed, I choose you. It is an active focus on the one being spoken to. It is never an, a, a, a language of active rejection. So first and foremost, understand that election is the deepest, deepest assurance God can offer His children if they are ever shaken in their faith. It is the tenderest, most emotive. You're mine. I chose you. I love you. And it needs to be received in that way. I don't think that's a valid application of this question to this text. But look at these verses. John 15, 16. Listen to it and hear the emotion behind those words. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, and whatever I ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. I chose you. Deuteronomy, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. You're mine. And I always picture that when I read this verse. It's, it's like, mine. <laughs> and this in, in his deep embrace. You know, out of all the peoples in the face of the earth, no, he didn't set his love on you or choose you because you are more in numbers, not merit, but because you were the fewest. Because the Lord loved you, he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, he brought you out by a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is faithful, he is the faithful God, who keeps his covenant, his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. You know these verses. Anyone dating here? Or getting married soon? Romantics sometimes say it was love at first sight. And every around, everyone else around melts and goes, oh, so sweet. But God goes further. It was love before sight. It was love before birth. It was love before time. How much bigger and, oh, does that deserve? So whenever you read of election, read it and receive it in love. Feel the full force of God's deep emotion for you. And I want to be very clear on this. You know that joke, and some people say, hey, you look very nice today. And people answer, oh, today only, man. Don't do that. Don't do that. When God says, I choose you, and so the others you don't choose, huh? that's not applicable. That's not applicable. That's not nice. That twists that deeply loving, intimate, assuring, affectionate words of our Lord Jesus when he says, I choose you. Receive that with joy and love. Receive it and know that because you were chosen, your end is glory. Unlike those who follow the man of lawlessness in 10 to 12, verses 10 to 12. And that's the but, by the way, at the start of verse 13. It's a contrast. The end of those whom God has chosen is a direct contrast to, those, to the end of those who follow the man of lawlessness. Your end is glory. And that's the assurance of salvation. That's probably the most important thing I want to say about election. And always, always remember that.
Okay. But having addressed the emotive part of ele election language, I, we do have to grapple with some of the troubling cognitive consequences. Yeah? And welcome to an age-old debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, two schools of theological thought. This isn't really the theme of these verses, but I think it would be incomplete not to at least touch on it briefly. So I want to offer a quick perspective. Here are the two views often seen as competing. One, God is sovereign. He has willed everything. It's election. That's more the Calvinist position. But the questions that come in response, well, then man has no free will, nah, and all those who didn't choose are too bad. Nah. The second view, man has complete free will. Election, how do you explain those election verses then? Oh, well, okay, because God in his foreknowledge, he knows the free choices that everyone would make ahead of time, and therefore it becomes part of his permissive will. He allows it because he, he knows it. That's more the Arminian position. But it actually raises questions, was God really sovereign? That there are difficulties with both positions. Well, I believe God is absolutely sovereign. What he wills will always come to pass. There's no greater security than that. It makes all his promises true. But I also believe we have true free will to make our own decisions, responses, and therefore be held accountable for them, be justly held accountable for them. And how do we resolve this? Three thoughts. One, be honest to acknowledge that free will is really only a concept in theory. In practice, no one has complete free will. You can't do anything and everything that you choose to. It's not possible. There are limits to what you can will. You may will yourself to fly, but no matter how hard you flap your arms, you're not going to. You may will to own an iPhone 14 or 15 Max coming out, but your finances may not allow you to buy a $2,000 phone. So yes, you have freedom of will in potential to do all those things, to buy all those things, but the actuality, your freedom of will and choice is ultimately limited to the options and opportunities available to you. So when raising free will as an objection, it's really that, a theoretical objection. It isn't a seeking question. That's my first thought. Secondly, when people speak of free will, I think what they try to mean is they can make their own choices without being forced. They prefer one thing over another and they have the ability to make that choice. I have free will to drink coffee or tea, but I choose coffee because that's my preference. Happily, we have coffee and tea after service, courtesy of three young men. Gourmet coffee and tea, no less. And that's what we mean by free will, yes? I can believe in Jesus or reject Jesus. It's my freedom of choice and will. And I hope you agree with me that insofar as our everyday decisions, that does seem to be the case. Choices are presented before us, we weigh them, we consider them, we think and we decide and we do it. And though they are very much our free will and choices, and naturally they incur consequences if we make poor choices. 
And how then might God's sovereignty show up? To this, maybe we should think about, well, what really shapes your will? Why do you even want what you want? When you say free will, you mean you have the freedom to make choices you want? But what influences that? Your upbringing? The land where you live? Your personality? Your inborn tendencies and preferences? Oh yes, your will is absolutely yours and you are free to make certain decisions. But Psalm 139 verse 13, who knitted you in your mother's womb? Acts 17 26, who ordained that you would be born in a certain time and place? That's sovereign choice. Sure, you have complete freedom of will to choose to eat poop, but I bet you wouldn't. Your sensibilities would stop you doing so. And even if we weren't so extreme, I like liver, some people don't. Oh, they have freedom to eat liver, that's free will, but likely would never do so because of individual preference. What shaped that preference? God in his sovereignty willed the world and creation into being, placing each and every plant, animal, insect, person exactly as he ordains in its time, space, and circumstance. And yet within his creation, he has made a space where each person is fully free to act in this world within the rules of nature and the natural order of things, where our actions make a difference and yield an eternal consequence. And indeed, this is your experience fully free to make any choice you wish, as a result, be held fully accountable for the actions. There is no conflict between God's sovereign will and your individual free will to do as you choose. But finally, whatever position you take, all believers agree that unregenerate man has no capacity to make the first move towards God. We don't. God has to do some kind of work in a person's life before a response to him is even possible. And that's why we pray when we do outreach. It isn't our efforts that's going to turn people around. It's God's pre-work in their lives, and we pray. In position one, Calvinism, where God elects, that was the first move was God's sovereign choosing. In position two, where man has complete free will, even Arminians say that pre-working of God is what's called prevenient grace. Some form of grace had to be working there too. So the doctrine of election then teaches that your salvation is sure because God's choice is sovereign and your end is glory. I have to leave this topic here, but I hope it has given you some food for thought. As mentioned, I don't pretend it has resolved everything. I hope it has just started a questioning of, of this and thinking deeper. Part one, point one, a complete salvation is one that begins with God's choosing and ends in glory. Point two is the key to this message, ultimately. Firm in gospel traditions, because this is the practical action. If you ask, well, so what about election? It's a very theological debate, very highbrow. What does it mean for me in real life? Well, this point is the answer. This is your part as a believer. 
As a consequence of God's assurance of, of, of choosing, stand firm, hold fast, don't give up. And that's what perseverance of the saints means. True believers will always persevere to the end. John, 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be evident they are not, they, they, they are not all of us. And that's how I now understand the experience of some of my Christian fellowship friends. The exhortation to stand firm is important because the Thessalonians were shaken and tempted to lose hope and give up following by the actions of those who followed the man of lawlessness. Can you relate? Trying to do the right thing but feeling like I'm the only one doing this, so why bother? Now, I'm trying to be a good worker, but my colleagues keep saying I spoil market. So don't work so hard. Nah. I'm trying to be a good student, but my friends, ayah, chill, ah, relax. I'm trying to be a good son, daughter, son-in-law, daughter-in-law. But my family doesn't recognize or appreciate my efforts, so why bother? In this passage, the Thessalonians were almost saying, I'm trying so hard to be a good follower of Jesus, but those who follow the man of lawlessness seem to be doing better. What's the point? Sorry, yeah, situational theology. So how might you fill in these blanks? I'm trying so hard to what? But what? So hard to do something for the Lord, but feeling, experiencing something else, leading to a questioning, a shaking of faith, wondering if holding on is worthwhile. How might you fill in those blanks? This shaking of faith when things don't seem to be going your way, when evil seems to be prevailing, when we start questioning, was God really real? Is he really powerful? Does he love me? Why is he making my heart life so hard? Is it worth it? Well, this is the main point of the message. Stand firm, hold fast. Martin Luther says, affliction maketh the theologian. Affliction maketh the theologian. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Three Latin words. Oratio is the prayerful reading of the word. Meditatio is that rumination, considering how the word plays out in different and every aspect of your life. Tentatio is your response in actual affliction. Well, point one on election was all about oratio and meditatio. It's good to theorize and theologize around. But point two is tentatio. If you're going through difficulty, if you're experiencing troubles, down in your emotions, shaken in faith, it's easy to praise God and sing hallelujah in good times. But when real fear grips your heart, tentatio, do you hold fast? Do you stand firm? A theologian is not made in the study. A theologian is made in affliction. I visited one of my colleagues on her deathbed about a year ago. She was stage four cancer. Her frail, frail, just uh, completely wasted away, barely speak her first words to me, God is good. I want to say hi to Brother James last week. 
his first words to me, God is good. A a theologian isn't one way able to articulate the doctrine of election in nice words. A theologian is my dear late colleague, Rena. A theologian is dear brother James, who stands firm and holds fast through affliction. And many of us here have pr- are proven through affliction. Okay, not many of us will go through such huge crisis of life and faith and persecution on a day-to-day basis. More of us will go through the difficulties of daily living. Even those bring their share of up and downs. It is easy to praise God when things go your way, not so easy when you're disappointed, angry, or afraid. So may I leave a challenge for you. One mark of Christian maturity is the ability to return your soul to joy. Don't be Christians who walk around mopey and unhappy A mark of Christian maturity is the ability to restore your soul to joy. I love this verse. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of their sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How do you restore your soul to joy? How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Well, Paul says, stand firm. Hold fast to what? The traditions you were taught. Bishop Renis Ponaya was the immediate past bishop in the Anglican Church of Singapore. I had the joy of attending a class on prayer with him once. He shared a story of visiting a parishioner who was so elderly and frail, hearing virtually gone, mind ravaged by dementia. Not knowing what else to say, he started praying the collect of peace over her. This prayer had been a mainstay of their weekly liturgies, which this dear lady had faithfully attended the past 60 years. And so Bishop Paniah began, O God, from whom all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works proceed, give unto thy servant thy peace, which the world cannot give. And then he shared, as he spoke these words over her, unmistakably, her lips began to move, silently mouthing the closing of that prayer. that also by thee, we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness to the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. He nearly broke down in tears just recounting that story. These, these are gospel traditions, daily devotions, liturgical prayers, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Prayer, Why do we do this ritualistically, week after week, day after day? They anchor your soul at the lowest points and hold you when you can no longer hold on. 
A complete salvation is characterized by standing firm, holding fast to gospel traditions, persevering throughout all of this life. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Affliction maketh the theologian. What is your present tentatio? What are you holding on to? And how do you return your soul to joy? But finally, what provides ultimate assurance of salvation? It is evidenced in works of faith. This was essentially Paul's prayer for them. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Faith is always evidenced in works. Paul himself, we ought to give thanks for you. Thanksgiving is a work of faith. Verse 17, good words, good works. Any absence of these in your life demands a very honest questioning. Are you truly saved? Because faith will express in works. No, works do not save, but faith will express in works. That's the message of James. And those who think they are saved but have no works to show for it are in very real danger of being quadrant two. And you should be shaken out of complacency to examine your life and faith. But that isn't really today's message. That's 2 Thessalonians 3. It will come. In summary, a complete salvation begins with election, God's sovereign choice. So receive these expressions of love, affection, and intimacy with joy and assurance. A believer experiences salvation when they respond to the gospel call, that in that moment they are justified when they repent. They are regenerated, made alive in their spirit, and adopted into God's family. For the rest of life, salvation is worked out by standing firm, holding fast, being proven in maturity, by returning your soul to joy through life's ups and downs and being proven in the tentatio of life. Ultimately, a life of faith is expressed by increasing good works and good words, perseverance and sanctification. A complete salvation ends with the glorification of the believer through death or the return of our Lord Jesus himself. This is a complete salvation. And this sermon is one of assurance, spoken to believers who may be shaken in their faith, wondering if they're truly in the faith or not. And may the message be unmistakably clear. God chose you, dear one. Be assured, no one can snatch you from the palm of his hand. Let's pray. For those of us who may be facing questions of salvation, Lord, may these words of love and affection embrace them and hold them close. For those of us shaken in our faith because of evils around us or just difficulties of life, Lord, may we hold fast, persevere, 
return our soul to joy, coming through that tentatio, affliction, difficulty, to know you and love you more deeply. For those of us who may be more complacent in our faith, Lord, would you shake us up that we might truly know you and grow into a life of faith evidence in works of faith. But in all things, Lord, you are sovereign, and we thank you for our complete and sure salvation. In Jesus' name.